Hey, good morning again. And for those of you who uh, have come in since I said good morning, good morning for the first time. Good to see you all. I to catch my breath for a minute. When we uh, had the masks on when we were playing, I remember I was just totally uh, winded when I would walk up. It's kind of funny. I think it was more a testament to just how out of shape I am, really. I realized, like, I used to run competitively, but my senior year of running was 2001. So it was a little bit a while ago, and I don't think I've maintained my fitness since then. Anyway, uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. The word of the Lord comes to us today from Hebrews 4, verses 1 through 13. Uh, this is almost the entire uh, uh, section of chapter 4. So if you get to chapter 4, you'll be in the right spot. Um, now that I've delayed long enough while you can turn the page, I'll read it for you. This is God's word for God's people. Hebrews 4, 1 to 13. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter the rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in his rest, he, in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father, this is our prayer today, is to listen to your commandment, that today if we hear your voice we would not harden our hearts. So often, Lord, we come to your word and we pray that you would open your scriptures to us, but let us remember that we should pray that you would open us to your scriptures, that as you did with the disciples on the Emmaus Road, you would open our minds to be able to understand the things here and that they would have their effect, Lord. You have said that your word will not return void until it's accomplished the purpose for which you have sent it. So we pray for that with this end this morning. We pray these things in the name of our King Jesus. Amen. Well, Hebrews 3, 6b, which is uh, part of a passage I taught from a few weeks ago. I actually couldn't remember when. Um, we were introduced to a new section in the book of Hebrews where the author gives one of several warning passages in the book of Hebrews. He gives these warnings to his readers and also to us. And he's cautioning them and us to not fall away from Christ through unbelief. Again, verse 3, 6b says, And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and boasting in our hope. 
this verse in itself didn't shed a lot of light on what it actually means to hold fast our confidence, but the author then proceeds at length to explain what he means in one large section of the book, which uh, spans from chapter 3, verse 7, to the end of our passage today, 4.13. Now again, if you remember from the last time I spoke, and also I don't remember when that was, a couple weeks ago, um, you remember that I said that the chapter divisions and the verse divisions in your Bibles weren't put there originally. You know, Moses and Paul, they weren't writing chapter 1, verse 1 when they were writing the text. These were added much later by editors to help us uh, find passages in the Bible. In fact, they weren't together in our Bibles until the 1500s. For the first one and a half millennia of the church, they didn't have chapter 3, verse 7, and so forth. Um, these were added, and obviously they're very helpful. I told you to look up Hebrews 4. We knew right where to go, and I can't imagine life without them now, but there are some instances where these divisions can be a bit misleading. You'll notice that sometimes you'll be reading through your Bible. I hope you're reading through your Bible, but you'll be reading through your Bible, and you'll be, say, why did they put a break right here? Why did they just end the chapter and start another one when he's obviously in the middle of a sentence? Some of them are awkward like that. And this section in Hebrews is like that as well. The warning section, which begins in 3b and ends in 4.13, but the chapter divisions between 3 and 4 might make you think like he's moving on to a different topic when actually it's the same subject that he's speaking about. It's one big section of Hebrews. There are several uh, chapters long sections where he's continuing a thought. If you wonder sometimes why myself or Pastor Jim will sometimes teach on one or two verses or a whole chapter, it's because when we're studying the scripture, we're trying to see where, where is the author's thought with this section? What is the pericope, as it's called? So this one is almost the whole of chapter four. Uh, the next time I'm up, I'm doing three verses because that's, that's the thought. But we can be misled sometimes if we're just following along with these chapters and verses. Why is this important? Well, context. This context is important. Hebrews is loaded with passages which are super familiar for us, um, yet they're often taken so far out of their context that for us they've lost their original meaning. And there are numerous examples of this that we're going to get to, for example, chapter 6. But for today, today's passage, which is chapter 4, 1 through 13, what we need to know and remember is that this is we're continuing into part B, if you will, of this larger warning section in Hebrews. The last time I spoke, we looked at uh, th chapter 3, verses 7 to 19, and you might remember me saying that that was part 1 of the, of the warning section that we'll be covering. In this warning section, and I think there's about five in the book of Hebrews, the author is using the hard-hearted rebellion of the ancient Israelites, which brought God's judgment to instruct Christians, that's us, in his own day and now, as to the dangers of hardening our hearts against God's word. He's holding up the Israelites for an example, and just like with Jonah, he says, don't be like these people. Don't, don't follow their, their role, their, um, what they did. He's holding them up as an example to avoid, and to do this, he's giving a small expositional sermon within the book of Hebrews. It's like this, this section between 3.7 and 4.13 is, is a mini-sermon within the book. He's instructing his readers from a passage in the Old Testament about the dangers of unbelief and faithfulness. Your, uh, faithlessness. And you, you remember that he's using 
Psalm 95. He begins there with the story of the Israelites hardening their hearts against God, and he continues to God saying, which is Psalm 95, 10 through 11, quoted in our passage in 3, 10 through 11. It says, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So he's using Psalm 95, but not the entire psalm to make his point here. So it's kind of an expositional sermon within the book. And it ends with, they shall not enter my rest. They shall not enter my rest. Because of their evil, unbelieving hearts, God had determined to judge rebellious Israel, and he caused everybody listed in the census 20 years old and over to perish in the desert and not reach the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb. God said to the unbelieving Israelites in Numbers 14, But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. God did this because of evil, unbelieving hearts that had hardened themselves against his word. To quote Galatians 6, 7, 8, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. God is not mocked. And the Israelites reaped what their unbelief had sowed. And the first half of the warning passage of, of Hebrews 3 ends by saying, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. They had evil, unbelieving hearts, and God swore that they would not enter his rest, and he brought judgment on them. And they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Enter what? They were unable to enter God's rest because of unbelief. Now, I know that you've heard me say that already, so I'm not trying to insult your intelligence or your attention span, but uh, I've repeated this phrase because it's the segue into this, morning pa this morning's passage. Verse 1 of chapter 4, our passage starts with, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. So the last passage says, They were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. This is the link between the two halves of this big warning passage, which began in 3b or 3.7, wherever you want to start. The two halves talk about the same subject of the consequences of unbelief, but they uh, kind of come from it from different angles, as it were. At least it appeared that way to me. It's, it's more nuanced than this. This is, just a, this is like carving a turkey with a chainsaw, but it's, it's almost like a carrot and stick division with this passage. In 3, 7, and 19... The author, he unveils the terrible ramifications of evil, unbelieving hearts. 
ending with the failure of the uh, unbelieving Israelites to enter God's rest. And in our passage today, the author, still using Psalm 95, invites his readers to look at what this rest actually is and what the promise still is, even for us living in 21st century American culture. So in other words, part A, if you will, is kind of talking about, look at how all these people died in the desert because of their unbelief. And this passage is, don't fail to reach the rest. Here's, here's what you want to be striving for. So, to, again, he says, he warns against losing their rest through unbelief, and he encourages them to persevere, to finish well, and to rest in faith. Oh, uh, it, we're still maybe a month away from it, but people put their decorations out early, so maybe you're seeing Halloween decorations, and there's always like the plastic or styrofoam tombstones that say R.I.P. on it, or if you've seen old black and white horror movies, you've seen this as well. What it stands for is requiescat in pace, which of course is Latin and means rest in peace. And that's very convenient for us monolingual Americans that the Latin and the English words start with the same letters. That, you know, we like to speak well of the dead and we like to say that they're resting in peace, but are they? And if so, if people who have passed away are resting in peace, does that mean that we have to wait until we die to find peace and rest? Because that's kind of depressing. We rest in peace. It sounds nice, but in reality, how do we do that? How do we enter God's rest? And how do we find peace and rest? Because so much of our lives are marked by the opposite of peace an opposite of rest. And there is in all of our hearts this incurable and often unbearable restlessness which causes, um, we don't even know how to properly describe what, what, what we're restless for or how to identify it, let alone cure it. People spend most of their time, most of their lives trying to seek a cure or ease this restlessness through every means that our culture and the world presents to us and offers as the the, the salve or the balm to this restlessness and everything that it advertises. Just, just ponder for a moment how many billions of dollars are spent in purchasing and advertising for the thing that's going to make you happy, the thing that's going to make you peaceful and restful. And we constantly tell ourselves, if only I had blank, or if only blank were different, then I would have peace and rest. But we always come up short. This is why we... Uh, we, we keep ordering more things from Amazon. As soon as the packages show up and we get them in the door, we're back on looking at the next thing. This is why our wish lists are so long. All of the things that we can have. Some people actually attain their blank and they are shocked to still be restless. And sometimes they're worse off than they were before because they realize that they were placing their hopes in this mirage and they feel the despair and the depression once they get it. And this contributes to why rich celebrities are often the most existentially miserable and physically drugged people on earth. John Piper is fond of saying that more people jump off the Coronado Bridge than off of the Brooklyn Bridge. And he says, well, the Coronado Bridge is near where all the rich neighborhoods are, and the Brooklyn Bridge is where all the poor neighborhoods are. He's saying the rich people are the ones who are in more number committing suicide than the poor because they're getting, this, they're getting their gods, they're getting their blanks, and it's not satisfying them. If humanity were capable of producing peace and rest, our world would look very different than it does right now. 
is think what place would there be for greed or envy or murder or theft or lies or materialism or sexual immorality or debauchery or drunkenness or war or anything else if peace and rest could be produced by our own efforts. We would have found it by now, right? Some, some person 2,000 years ago would have come up with, with the cure and we'd all be happy right now. Sadly, most of humanity lives and dies outside of God's rest in the deserts of unbelief. Yet, as C.S. Lewis poignantly asked, if nothing in this world can truly satisfy, isn't that proof that we weren't made for this world? That the things created weren't intended to satisfy us, but we were supposed to be satisfied by something not natural, but supernatural. If nothing within creation can give us peace and rest, then we must have been created to find peace and rest in something above creation. A rest found not in the slavery of Egypt, nor in the deserts of unbelief, but the rest of a promised land. And a Blaise Pascal, that's a really cool name, though, Blaise, I should have named that. He said, what is it then that this desire and this inability proclaim to us, but that there was once in man a true happiness, of which there now remain to him only the mark and empty trace, which he in vain tries to fill from all his surroundings, seeking from things absent the help he does not obtain in things present. These are all inadequate, because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object. That is to say, only by God himself. There's an infinitely deep hole in our hearts, and we're trying to fill it by throwing the world's pleasures down. I think about this, one of those old-timey stone wells where it's just black, and this is where your restlessness is, and we're just showing, uh, shoving you know, wheelbarrow loads of stuff down the well, hoping that it fills up eventually. But only an infinite something can fill something infinite. Only God can fill the God-sized hole in our hearts because he put that yearning there and he ordered for us to be satisfied with him and in him. One thing that kind of um, is surprising to uh, anthropologists and sociologists is that every culture in the world has, has our worshipers. They worship something. There's a religion everywhere. If you think about that, it's kind of funny. If you were coming from the perspective of philosophical naturalism, as in all that's real, all that's knowable, all that's true is what, it, is what is, you know, what is solid that you can empirically observe, then wouldn't it make sense that at some point some culture would just naturally be atheists because that was what we naturally are. But every single person in the world worships something. We were created to worship. And this is the, this is the big distortion in, uh, with the fall and with the fallen world. We were created to worship God we reject God, so we try to worship everything else. We will not be satisfied until we worship God again. This is why he said in Jeremiah, you've committed two, two big sins. You've abandoned the fountain of living waters, and you're, you're digging around in broken cisterns. We had this thing that was going to satisfy us, which was going to give us water, which was going to quench us. We said, I don't want that. I'm going to eat some of this dirt, and that's a better idea. But you're never going to have this, the, uh, the quench of your thirst if you keep digging around in the broken cisterns. For the ancient Israelites specifically, and for the masses of humanity generally, they're not going to rest. There will be no rest because they will fail to enter God's rest because of unbelief. To enter God's rest, you must have faith. To enter God's rest, 
you must rest in faith. Instead of requiesce God in pace, it is requiesce God in fide, rest in faith. Not that we have faith in faith, but in having faith in God's true and trustworthy promises, we enter God's rest. Let's look at verses 1 to 5 of our passage. He says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. God promised a rest for his people, but they failed to reach that rest because they did not believe in the promise. He extended his hand and he said, follow me. And instead of believing his promises, they hardened their hearts and rebelled against him. I was thinking about that, how opposite that was to when Jesus called people. And they put down, they stopped whatever they were doing and they followed him. They put down their nets and they followed him. Jesus calls these Israelites. And these Israelites, as I mentioned in the last message, had so many more evidences of God than even these disciples did at the time. They see this, this man walk up and they follow him. Imagine all of the things the Israelites saw between the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the manna. They heard God's voice speak from Sinai and they hardened their hearts against him. They did not receive it by faith. The author says, in essence, says, look, you Christians, you've received good news too. You have God's ultimate revelation in Jesus Christ. God himself has stepped foot on this earth. You have the good news of the gospel, which promises rest to those who believe. The ancient Israelites had good news of a promised rest as well. They had a primitive gospel as an incomplete. Yet the good news did not do them any good because they did not receive it in faith. They heard the good news, just as so many people in churches across the world hear the good news, but the Israelites were denied entry into God's rest because they did not have faith in the promise, just as those who hear the gospel today and reject it will also be denied God's rest. Again, this is the second warning passage that we're looking at. first one was chapter 2, where it said, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And as we discussed when we went through that passage earlier this year, the answer is, we won't. We won't escape if we neglect such a great salvation. Verses 2b and 3 of our passage say, the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listen. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. God entered rest on the seventh day of creation. Uh, the scriptures say in Genesis 2.2, and that's what's quoted in our passage, uh, that God rested from his works, his creative activity came to an end and he rested and he continues to be at rest in a certain sense but we know that this rest is in a cessation of activity um, there's a 
I don't know if you want to call it a religious persuasion, but there's a, folks that call themselves deists. They basically believe God wound the watch and just let it go. So he's not involved with the world anymore. We don't want to say that it's God's resting in the sense that he's not actively engaged in his world today because Jesus said in John 5, 17, my father is working until now and I am working. But God entered a Sabbath rest on the seventh day of creation that he is still in. Verse 3 of our passage says that God's works were finished from the foundation of the world and he has a rest and he's invited us to enter through faith. The restlessness of the human heart that we all know so well can be laid aside as we enter God's rest. And yes, your trials will continue as long as you are in this life, but through faith in Jesus Christ and in his substitutionary atoning sacrifice at Calvary on that April afternoon 2,000 years ago, we may enjoy a peace which transcends all understanding and guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Verses 6 and 7 of our passage say, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. These verses say that this offer of entering God's rest still stands. It wasn't exclusive to the Israelites at the time. It didn't end with them. The Israelites perished, but the promise still stands. God's word speaks to every human heart today, now, today. As long as it's called today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. They say to everyone who hears what he says to not refuse the offer of grace that God's holding out to us. And don't think that we can enter God's grace by any other means but by faith in Jesus Christ, in his work, in his life, in his death on a cross. Don't get to that last day, in other words, when you stand before God and try trusting in your own righteousness and your own so-called goodness to save you. Do not harden your hearts to the truth that we all must repent of our sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, to his mercy, to his life, to his death, his resurrection, in order for us to enter God's rest. Today is for today. Don't trust yourself, but throw yourself upon the mercy of God. It's strange, you know, you, you say a, a, you know, a series of, of words like that, and folks that have grown up in the church start saying, yeah, 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 I've heard it already. It's a kind of warning what we're talking about. When is the gospel getting old to you? Maybe like that song we were just singing by Keith Green um, right before, create in me a clean heart. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Because this sounds like an evangelistic portion. And if we've been in church a long time, we tend to kind of be like, okay, this is for the visitors. This is for my non-Christian person over there, not for me. But the shocking thing about this passage for us today is that these words are addressed to people in the church. This portion of our passage is a warning to professing Christians. He didn't write this to send to the unbelieving cities around. He sent this to the church to read. This portion of our passage sounds like it should be for those outside of the walls of the church, but it isn't. This entire warning section and the appeal to believe savingly in the Lord Jesus Christ is being made by those who say they're Christians, people who honor with their lips but are far from God with their hearts. Reflect back to chapter 3, verse 12, the, from the first half of this warning section. He says, 
take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an, un- an evil, unbelieving heart. Brothers, fellow professing Christians, take care lest among you, you the church, you the ones who sit under preaching and sing songs and take communion and get baptized and are in small groups and volunteer in the ministries of the church, take care lest among you there's a heart that doesn't believe in Jesus Christ savingly. The person who has such a heart will not enter God's rest. God says, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. He doesn't just say it, he swears it. God promises, you will not enter my rest. He makes a promise of death. And unless you have faith, unless you have a heart that trusts in Christ for salvation and in nothing else, you will not enter that rest. Remember the most chilling words of Jesus? In Matthew, he says, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, look at the things I did. He says, I never knew you. And so this is a warning for the cultural Christians, for the social Christians, the nominal Christians. Don't just show up at church and call yourselves Christians without believing in the heart of the message. Don't think that you will enter God's rest just because you grew up in a Christian house or because you checked a box at some point or you voted for the right candidate or you used Christianese or you listened to 106.5 or whatever it is. I actually don't. <laughs> it's actually kind of funny. Uh, was it yesterday? Yeah, yesterday was Saturday. They had a um, uh, youth group sleepover, and while they were cleaning up, they were playing Christian music, and some of the songs were the ones that we play up here, and I had never heard the recorded versions before. So, where was I? Um, good news. <laughs> I don't listen to Led Zeppelin anymore either, so I'm in between. Good news came to us just as did to the Israelites. They, they had this. This word good news is, is euangelion. It's where we get our word evangelism. Good news. It's the gospel. It did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. The time to turn to Christ is today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Jesus warned about those who uh, on the outside looked like they were followers, but inwardly were unbelieving. Um, this is formerly, you know, in older versions of your Bible called the weed and the tares. But in the parable of the weeds, Jesus says, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, Then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in our field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go out and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Uh, the, the weeds, they're called tares, and um, I think Heather told me that uh, when wheat and tares are young, they look the same. You can't tell the difference outwardly. It's not until there's a maturity which, re- which, which is reached where you can tell these aren't the same thing. So the master says, don't pull them out unless you're grabbing the wrong thing. Don't try to you know, um, go through your churches and decide who's the Christian and who's not because you're going to throw out the wrong thing. Jesus later explains what this parable means. It says, Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, 
The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is saying there is going to be a sorting. The reapers are going to separate the wheat from the weeds. There's not going to be one strand of, of weed that gets in with the weeds. Evil, unbelieving hearts will not enter God's rest. God has sworn in his wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The rest which the Israelites were promised wasn't ultimately the physical promised land. That wasn't the last stage for the, for the Israelites. That was the land that God promised to Abraham and his descendants. But the author of Hebrews wants us to know that the ultimate rest, the ultimate fulfillment of the promise of rest is greater than a patch of land on the east of the Mediterranean. He continues in our passage in 8.13. It says, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest will also rest from his works as God did from his. Let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him of whom we must give an account. I don't know if any of you are reading the KJV, but your KJV inaccurately lists it as Jesus, which, which is kind of interesting because Joshua was a type of Christ in the sense that just as Jesus leads us into rest, Joshua was leading the Israelites into rest. Um, the Hebrews was written in Greek. The Greek for, Je for Joshua is the Yesu, which we get Jesus from. So at their Hebrew roots, Joshua and Jesus are actually the same word. So older translations might say Jesus, it's Joshua. And Joshua, Yeshua, one of the two adult men who survived God's judgment, led the next generation of Israelites into the Promised Land. He crossed the Jordan and they had the conquest in the book of Joshua. But the author says the rest that Joshua led them into was not the ultimate rest. That was not the final stop for them because if it had been, then God would, would not have spoken of another rest, which he does in Psalm 95, which was written 400 years later. That wasn't the end. Psalm 95, God says, they will not enter my rest. It's not that, that wasn't the end. So the promise of the rest remains to this day. A Sabbath rest, a rest from our works, just as God is resting from his works. And since the promise of a Sabbath rest remains, we professing Christians in the church are urged to strive to enter it, to enter that rest so that none of us will fall by the same kind of disobedience that happened in the desert. Again, he says, look at the example of them. They failed because they did not believe. Don't do that. Strive to rest. It sounds like a, like a contradiction. The author is talking about the same kind of perseverance, the same kind of endurance to the end that we see in other writings in the New Testament. 
the Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew 24 that in the end, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. In Philippians 3, Paul says that he strains forward. He presses on towards the goal. And then in 2 Timothy, which is the last letter he writes before he dies, he says that he fought the good fight. He finished the race. He kept the faith. He kept the faith, the faith that we're talking about in Hebrews. And keeping the faith means striving. It means fighting the fight. It means running the race. It means enduring to the end. It means don't give up. We strive to enter the rest, and we do not harden our hearts to God's voice. A lot of folks have uh, really um, dug into that passage on the, live, on the Word of God being living and active, and they try to extract from the examples all sorts of, of things, um, much to kind of missing the point of what it's actually talking about. They're missing the point of the sword. Sure, there are details perhaps that you can glean from it, but the point the author is making that this is something which pierces you all the way to the most individual, indivisible parts of you. You can't ignore God's Word and treat it like it's a dusty old book. You can't harden your heart to it because it's not just some old tome that, that was written by drunken monks, as I've heard some, some people say. It's living, it's active, and it pierces you to, to your deepest, uh, most undividable parts, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of your heart, and no one, no one is hidden from his sight. We must all give an account, because God's eye, before God's eyes, we're all naked and exposed. There's nothing that you are doing now when no one else is watching that is hidden from God. Who is it? Uh, Richard Dawkins, I think. He, he likes to poke fun at the idea of God's omniscience. He says God's a cosmic voyeur because he's always spying on us. It's, uh, I think he should thank God for the mercy to still be breathing. But it's true, though. God's eyes see all everything that we're doing. We're, nothing's hidden from his sight. And one commentator said... How often people think that they're judging the Bible when just the opposite is true. The Word of God penetrates within, and its presence makes clear our true thoughts and attitudes. Many people affect to be good and even religious, but when the Word of God comes to them, they respond with hostility and repulsion. Their attitude to the Bible shows their true attitude toward God. We can't hide from God's Word. We can't ignore God's Word. We can't harden our hearts to it or disbelieve it or refuse, to, uh, refuse it and think that we're going to enter into God's rest. We must strive forward in faith, knowing that if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be saved. Because Christ the King went before us. He defeated death. And our next passage will say he passed through the heavens. And we, too, can enter God's rest. The question is, can we rest in peace? Well, in Christ we can because we can rest in faith. And uh, the next passage will we'll change gears again. We're going to be through with the warning passages. And this will go to a, a section in Hebrews which talks about Christ's high priesthood, the things that he's doing for us, to make sure this promise stands, that we can't enter his rest, because Christ is our priest. That's a huge passage. I'm not going to do the whole section at once, because I think it starts in... Uh, 414, and one of the commentators says it ends in chapter 10. So we want to, I mean, maybe you want me to just get, get it over with, but six chapters. But it's, it's important to know that where we're going with this next, because the author of the Hebrews just gave this warning to Christians. And he says, 
don't lose out through lack of faith. And then he's going to go say what a, what a great high priest we have in our king. Amen. Our Lord, maybe for many of us, we just don't think this passage applies to us. Perhaps that means we're doing well, or perhaps that means we're in grave danger of not having that faith. Yet I know that in every body, there are most likely those who haven't embraced this truth yet, that they must surrender their lives. They can't lean on their, their works, their goodness. That, Lord, please save us from that. Please open our eyes to the ways that we're hardening our hearts to you, the ways that we're not believing in your promises. Let us understand, Lord, that when we feel most restless and when we feel most desperate to achieve or get things in this world, those are the times when we're least satisfied in the Lord Jesus. So as we were saying before, Lord, restore unto us the joy of thy salvation and renew a right spirit within us. Give us this joy, Lord. You offer it in such abundance. Let us rejoice in the Lord always. Let us love him. Let us see the beauty of Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.